Imagine a firefighter, first responder, responding to a fire, and uh, he rushes into a burning building. It's happened plenty of times, dozens of times, millions of times. Uh, now imagine that, that as he is willing to, you know, uh, to give his life for the cause of another. I, you know, I think of that scripture, it's probably been said uh, at many a, a fireman's funeral, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for another. Uh, you know, for, for, for many firemen, it, it's more than a job. It, it, it's a calling, and, and it really is a mission. Now, now imagine, right, that he rushes into a, a burning building to rescue those that are trapped inside uh, only to be insulted, uh, only to, to, be, to be slapped, to be spit upon, to be, uh, to be falsely accused of, of, of some ill motive. Imagine that, that that is probably unimaginable for us, right? To, uh, to think that that would happen to somebody in, in the position of uh, being one who's come to rescue those who are perishing. Now, I want you to take that illustration, that, that, that allegory, and I want you to apply that to, to the Father, our Heavenly Father, who has commissioned his son on a rescue mission to, risk, to, to, to rescue the perishing. And instead of being honored and instead of being appreciated for his coming, uh, he has experienced contempt, conflict from sinful people. Uh, he's been spit upon. He's been slapped. And of course, ultimately crucified. It was because of love that Jesus was motivated to come and to, to be heaven's hero. And, and if his rescue was rejected by, by some, that means his, his love was rejected. The Father's love was rejected. Jesus said, anyone who receives me receives him who sent me. And, and the opposite is true. If we don't receive him, therefore we don't receive the one who also sent him. But this, is, this, this, this came by no surprise. This was all by divine design. This was according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God that, that Jesus the Messiah would be known as the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. I mean, that was his destiny to experience that. What, what, what would you imagine that, that firefighter, that first responder's feelings or emotions would be in that situation? I mean, after the first initial experience of anger, I think the, the lasting, resonating emotion probably would be a broken heart. And I think that's exactly what Jesus experienced, is a broken heart. As I mentioned earlier in this series, that he literally died of a ruptured or a broken heart. Reproach had broken my heart, Psalm 69 says. Despised and unwanted, insulted, rejected by men, wounded in the house of his friends. But you know, we could learn a lot by how Jesus processed a broken heart. But the benefits that come to us is, are not just by watching how or learning how Jesus processed a, a broken heart. It comes from knowing him and being known by him who can also help us in the midst of our broken hearts and broken situations. I wanted to share a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. I've shared this quote before. It's worthy of looking at again and not forgetting. And so, and so it's up on the screen. You can follow along with me. 
C.S. Lewis said this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. It's powerful, isn't it? Amazingly, God, who is unbreakable, made himself vulnerable, made himself breakable, so that through his brokenness, we might be redeemed. Through his sorrow, we might know joy. I said several weeks ago in the introduction to this message that it was through his rejection that we have acceptance, through his death that we have, we have life. And it's through his pain and sorrow that we have incredible joy and peace that's inexplicable. All that amazing exchange that takes place because of, because of love having come and having been rejected by some. Remember, we've been looking at this through the prologue of John's gospel. The introduction to John's gospel said, he came into the world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Came into his own, his own people, his own nation, his own family, but, but they didn't receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. And so there's contrast, and we're going to be looking at this contrast back and forth throughout the, this series in, in, in the study of Dear John, When Love is Rejected. He, he talks about light and darkness, and he talks about love and hate. And, and, and so we, we're going to look at this contrast as well this morning. I want you to think about this with me. As our plan this morning is to look at the second sign that Jesus uh, did according to the Gospel of John. John records... Uh, the first miracle as the first sign and the second miracle as the second sign that Jesus did and his disciples believed upon him more deeply. We looked at that last week. And, and, and I, I wanna, what I want to do is I want to kind of fast forward for a, a minute to almost the end of the book of John and, and kind of uh, look at what, he, what John's takeaway is. Uh, we, we call it a, the bottom line or, or, or the takeaway. What John wanted his readers or his hearers to, to understand and to take away from the impact of, of his message. And so looking at John chapter 20 and verse 30, almost at the end of the book, John says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So John doesn't record all of the miracles of Jesus. In fact, he goes on to say that if all of the things that Jesus did and said were put in books, then the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Exaggeration? No way. But he said this, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, and, and notice the simplicity of this. You can, you can take this as the simplicity of the gospel, that by believing you may have life in his name. I love that expression. Because there is life in Jesus. 
There is life in his name. By believing, by, by, by living for, by giving your life to, by, by believing in Jesus, there is life. His life is, his name is life. There's no other name given, the Bible says, whereby men must be saved. And what an amazing opportunity this is for anyone that's here this morning who may not be a follower of Jesus. And we just want you to know that we're excited about the fact that you're here this morning. But, but, but here's, here's this amazing opportunity to understand that the simplicity of eternal life, and by the way, eternal life is not the duration of time because everybody is going to live forever somewhere. But the eternal life that Jesus came to provide is a quality of life. It is, it is not only endless, it is beyond imagination. It's beyond beyond anything that we could have even thought of or asked that God has prepared such an amazing life for us in Christ. What I want you to see is this, that this is all grace. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's ill-deserved, and it it is God having mercy upon whom he will have mercy. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is life in the name of Jesus. There is restoration in the name of Jesus. There is, there is the recovery of, of things that are lost that come to us because of the power that is in the name of Jesus. So last week we looked at the first miracle of Jesus, the transforming of the water into wine, the creative miracle I mean, he didn't just make, you know, wine-flavored water. I mean, he made the very best wine. It was, it was fermented wine, and, and, it, and it demonstrated his creative power over nature in that, in that glorious miracle. And we said that as Jesus was sipping wine at that wedding, he was thinking about the cost, what it would cost him to, cre- to create wine for his wedding because this miracle really pointed to it was a parable of a future day that was coming, a wedding that he would be the bridegroom at and that we, the believers in Christ, would be the bride of Christ. And he thought about that and, 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 and the knowledge of that was even seen in the Last Supper when he took the cup of wine and he said, this is, the, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. And so it was always on his mind. The cross was always on his mind because that was his mission to come to accomplish. This was the first sign that Jesus displayed his glory and the Bible says that his disciples believed more deeply in him. And it took place in Canaan. And we're gonna look at a moment, at another miracle that kind of takes place in Canaan, or it's recorded that uh, the event takes place in Canaan. And so from Canaan, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and uh, in Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, and uh, he turns over the money tables, and he releases the doves, and, and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And, and Jesus g- gives them this cryptic message. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, man, you're crazy. It took 46 years to build this building and will you raise it up in three days? But he wasn't talking about that physical temple. He was talking about his body, which his disciples, the Bible says, remembered after his resurrection. And, and, and while he's there, In Jerusalem, the Bible says that they brought to him the lame and the blind and the sick and the demonized, and he healed many of them there in Jerusalem. And so from 
Jerusalem. And while still in Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Nicodemus comes to him. Nicodemus is not a bad guy. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. And, and, and we see him, he kind of almost defends Jesus in John chapter 7. But Nicodemus was afraid that if anyone would have acknowledged or professed belief that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be excommunicated and thrown out of Judaism. And so, so Nicodemus, like so many others, bowed to the fear of being excommunicated. But the interesting thing about this is that to Nicodemus, Jesus spoke and said, you know, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, we know that you must be from God because no one can do the miraculous things that you're doing unless God is with them. And he was right on about that. But Jesus cut to the chase and said, Nicodemus, you got to be born again or else you can't see the kingdom of God or else you can't enter into the kingdom of God. And 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 he speaks in, in terms that went right over Nicodemus' head. Nicodemus did not understand. He did not grasp what, what Jesus was talking about. And as a result of that, I, I find a contrast that, that to this religious leader, Jesus is speaking in terms of cryptic, mysterious language. But then in the fourth chapter, which, which follows the story of Nicodemus, Jesus meets this woman who you would think would be the last person in the world that Jesus would engage in a conversation with. See, she's a, she's a woman who had five husbands. I mean, not, not even the Kardashians can fall into that category of having five husbands, right? Come on, right? I mean, she's had five husbands, and the man that Bible says that she, Jesus knew this, that she was now living with was not her husband. And yet Jesus is having a conversation with her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was speaking with you, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. And he tells her in the plainest of language. I mean, to to, to no one else did Jesus so plainly say, I am the Messiah, the one whom you are talking to. Now, I am the Messiah. That's grace. See, grace isn't fair. See, if grace were fair, then it would be based upon works. And and grace is never fair. It is always God having mercy upon whom God will have mercy. And and, and the fact of the matter is is that we're all all in that same category of being in need of grace. So she gets so excited, this woman, right? And this is where we're going to pick up in the story. She gets so excited that she... She runs into the village and she says, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Now, now, that's kind of funny because everybody in town knew everything that this lady did. But somehow or another, they grasped the hold of what she was saying. She said, could this be the Messiah? And there was a hope. There was an expectation among these Samaritans. Those Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile, mixed all together for a number of generations. And they were, they were considered as being less than human, being dogs, you know. And, and, so, and so now they come out by, the, by a crowd comes out to see Jesus. And so we pick up in the story and it says this now in verse 39, many of the Samaritans that were from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. They, they besought him. They said, please, 
Jesus, stay with us here. We want, we want more of you. We want more of your word. And so he stayed there for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. I, lo- I love that. Because of his word, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What an incredible profession of faith. Based simply upon the person and the words that came from Jesus' lips, based simply upon his teaching, they said, we know that this man truly is the savior of the world. Now, the contrast is that Jesus in Samaria didn't, didn't heal a headache, didn't heal, heal uh, hiccups. He didn't, heal the, he didn't do the slightest miracle, but the people believed on the simplicity of his word and the authority of his word. For Jesus spoke as one having authority. And they put their faith and their confidence in his word. Now, what I want you to see is this, that the foundation of their faith became Christ alone. I love that. The foundation of their faith became Jesus Christ and him alone and the authority of of his word, and that is so important for not only for them but also for us. You see, Jesus is more than a faith healer, Jesus is, is more than a prophet. Jesus is very God who spoke the universe into existence, and he is to be received for who he is, not just for what he does. There's a world of difference between seeking God. Because you're seeking God and seeking signs and wonders. And so I want you to know that Jesus is way more. Now here's the contrast. And we're going to look at this contrast. They received Jesus on the basis of his word. But now Jesus is going to have nothing but but correction for the Israelites who he says is a a wicked and a perverse generation who seek after a sign and no sign shall be given this generation except that of the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the the belly of a whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. The only sign for you will be that resurrection. But I want you to see this. This is the underlying theme of John's message. This is why it's so important that signs and wonders do not produce faith. Signs and wonders follow faith. They do not produce faith. The children of Israel saw many signs and wonders in the wilderness for a period of 40 years, and yet they perished because of their unbelief. Signs and wonders does not produce faith. It is the pure and the simple words of God, taking God simply at his word. And this is the underlying theme of John's message. This is what Jesus said to Mary and Martha. He said, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And he says that to us as well, that if we will believe in the purity of his word, we will see the glory of God. This is, this is what Jesus was trying to say, what he said to Thomas when, 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 when he said to Thomas, come on, Thomas, put your, put your hand in my nail prints and put your hand in my side and be not faithless, but be believing. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you, you believe because you've seen 
But there is a blessedness for those who believe who have not seen. And so we are to be believers based not upon signs and wonders, not upon the evidence, the outward evidence that is not faith producing, but faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. The foundation of our faith must be Christ and his person that our eyes have been opened to see the glory and the splendor of Jesus, of who he is. I said a little while ago that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father, that, that, that the revelation of Christ to, to the human heart is life itself. So look at verse 43 with me as we continue in this story. After the two days he left for Galilee, after what two days? The two days that he spent in Samaria. And they were glorious times. For, this, this was a time of refreshment for Jesus because they had received Jesus based upon the purity of his word and, and there was a harvest. Jesus was, was, was experiencing the joy of reaping a harvest of souls. That scripture says that many became believers. Many entered into eternal life as a result of simply believing Jesus to be the savior of the world. And that's what brings us into life itself. And so after two days, and, and here's the contrast. Remember, in the, in the village of Nazareth, which is, which is a village in Galilee, how, how was Jesus received? He was received with contempt and disdain. They were offended at him to, to the point where they thrust him out of the synagogue and they would have thrown him over a cliff if they could have. So that's the contrast. He came to his own and his own received him not, but to as many as did receive him, he, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Now it says this in verse 44. Now Jesus himself pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And that was his experience. He had to go to Samaria outside of Israel to receive the, the honor and the appreciation that he received from those people. I, listen, I, I know what that's like. I, I've been to foreign countries. I, I know that people receive you in, in such a way that, well, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. There's a saying that goes. Well, verse 45 says this, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, is that a contradiction? It says that the Galileans welcomed him, but it's how did they welcome him? They didn't welcome him for the august person that he was, like the Samaritans as the savior of the world. They welcomed him because they were fascinated by his being a faith healer. You see, we're going to read in a moment that they were, many of them were in, at the feast in Jerusalem when Jesus was doing those other miracles that John doesn't tell us about. But here's the, here, here's the contradiction. They weren't receiving Jesus for the august person that he was or for the value of his words or his teaching. They, they cared little about his word or his teaching. What they were interested in was the, the fascination, the sensational, the, 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 the dramatic demonstrate for us. They wanted to see Jesus perform as though he somehow he was a, a genie, you know, in a lamp. And, you know, just give us three wishes and, and, and we'll believe in you. Verse 45 says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they 
were also there. As I mentioned, it was the way in which they received him, not as being Lord and Savior. Verse 46, once more he visited Canaan in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is about 20 miles away from, from where this man was at this point. <clears throat> and I, it was interesting. I was speaking with Dan, and he said that he did a bike ride, which was about 20 miles uh, the other day, right? About 20 miles. I said, how, how, I was curious because I knew, I knew 20 miles was in my, was in my message. He said, how long did that take you? I'm sorry, Dad. What did you say? How long that took you? An hour, hour, and 15 minutes away. Just, just, just bear that in mind for a minute. Now, that was a bicycle. I doubt, I doubt very much that they had bicycles back in the day, but they sure had horses, right? But this was a nobleman. This, this, this was probably a man who was an official from the household of Herod. This was a man of wealth and power. This was a man of influence. And this was a man who had a great need. And the great need that he had was that his, sick, his son was sick into, at the point of death. And so it says in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. I doubt very seriously if this man ever begged for anything or anyone in his entire life. But here, out of desperation, he had heard something about Jesus. So at least there was some measure of faith in his coming. But his faith was inferior and his faith was imperfect, as we shall begin to see. But he was desperate and it was desperation that brought him to Jesus. We see this by the response of Jesus in verse 48. Jesus said this, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders Jesus told him, you will never believe. Unless you people, and that is in the plural there. So Jesus is speaking to this father, but he's speaking to more than just a father. He is speaking to the Galileans as well who are, who are watching all these events as they take place. And here's the complaint that Jesus has. And, and it seems like it's a sharp rebuke and it's somewhat similar to the first miracle in which Jesus said to his mother, didn't call her mom, didn't say, didn't say mother. He said, woman, what have I to do with you? Or what does this concern have to do with me? And, and, and this is definitely a correction that Jesus is making here or a reproof. And to the Galileans who are watching this event as well. You see, the, the weakness of this man's faith was that he believed that if Jesus went down to Capernaum, then his son might have the hope of being healed, which was 20 miles away. But he needed to discover that to the one who created the universe, 20 miles, 20 million miles was no obstacle. That a stronger faith like the centurion who said, don't don't bother coming into my house, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Remember that story? That, that, That man's faith Jesus commended. This man's Faith was based upon if you come to my house, if you lay hands on my child, if you speak over my child, his faith was inferior. And as a result of that, he receives this correction. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, Jesus, don't you care about this dying child? Jesus, don't you care about this man who's come 
to you is in this desperate situation? And my answer is yes, of course he cares. But Jesus not only cares for a sick body, he also cares for a sick soul. He also cares for the eternal being because remember, he he is not just a faith healer. He's the savior of the world. And what he's interested in is the salvation of this man's soul. As it will begin to unravel, as we'll begin to see that Jesus is after a double cure. That Jesus is not only interested in bringing healing to this, this dying boy, but he's interested in bringing healing to this father's heart of unbelief and doubt. So it says in verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. And the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. I tell you one thing I like about this man is that he didn't get insulted and he didn't turn and, and, and walk away in a huff and, 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 and he didn't complain and, and And he was persistent. At least one of the things that he had going for him was the persistence and something like like that spirit that was on Jacob who said, I'll not let you go until you bless me. There is something of great value for all of us to learn in being persistent when it comes to letting our requests be made known to God, to not letting go of God until he grants us the very thing that we need. And sometimes God, you know, delays the answer because he wants to see the sincerity of our hearts, because there's power in the words of Jesus. His words are spirit, and his words are life. But what I like about this father was his unwillingness to let go of the situation, and so he said, sir, please come down. And even though his faith was imperfect, he was was laying hold of Jesus. And Jesus said, you may go, your son will live. Now, I want you to follow carefully. It says, And I love this phrase, the man took Jesus at his word and he departed. Now, something happened. Something changed in this man's attitude. Something changed in his heart. Because at this moment, now the word became enough. And the word became sufficient for the man. Because it says that the man took Jesus at his word and he departed. And while he was still on the way, remember 20 miles away, by, by horse it probably, I don't know, maybe a couple of hours, right? By car, right? 20 miles, 20 minutes, 60 miles an hour. By bicycle, an hour, a little, maybe a little bit more. By horse, maybe but, but I want you to notice this very carefully here, that the man does not go home immediately. It says that while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour, which we will discover was exactly when Jesus said, your son will live. Verse 53 says, Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. That is, he and all of his family became believers. And this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judah to Galilee. Distance is no barrier for Jesus. Because the one who spoke the universe into existence can speak a word and bring salvation to a family, bring healing to a child that's 20 miles away or 20 million miles away. 
He raises no objections. He shows such implicit confidence in Jesus that now he takes his time to go home because almost a 24-hour period goes by and he finally gets home 20 miles away and he finds out that it was exactly at that time. You see, what I want you to see is this, is that when we take Jesus at his word, when we believe that the word is enough for us, we enter into an inexplicable peace, a peace that passes understanding. It's a rest for the people of God. And the Bible calls us to enter into a rest that Jesus Christ himself has created. By entering into that rest, we, we, we cease from striving. You know, how, how many times have you, have you been in a situation where the word of the Lord that came to you was be still and know that I'm God. Cease from striving. Enter into a place of rest and a place of peace. See, I believe with all my heart that when we put our trust and our explicit confidence in God, there's going to be a, a peace that passes all understanding that's going to be inexplicable. You, you, you won't be able to, to get people to understand why are, you, why, why are you so at rest? Why are you so at peace? Because it's the God of peace and the peace of God that's keeping your heart and your soul. Here's the amazing thing, that trials can be a blessing in disguise when we put our trust in Christ. Here was, a, here was a boy brought almost to the point of death that became the catalyst for an entire family having eternal life. You will meet this family one day. You will meet this nobleman one day because that entire family... That not only had the healing of their child, but they had the healing of their soul. Because I tell you what, it's a wonderful thing to have physical healing, but it's beyond description to have eternal life, to receive eternal life because of our belief in Jesus Christ. The Samaritans believed and they took Jesus at his word simply on the basis of his word. No, no signs and wonders were necessary. And this man came to that same place of honoring Jesus because he took Jesus at his word. In that first sign, Jesus showed creative power to bring, to bring, to bring transformation from water into wine. In the second sign, Jesus shows that his word is enough to bring healing to somebody at the point of death. As a an official, as a, as a nobleman, he discovered that titles and power and money and influence are, are, no, are no, no power at all when it comes to sickness and death. But the name of Jesus and the power that is in Jesus is the thing that he discovered was more than enough. Our takeaway this morning is simply this, that Jesus' word is power enough because there's life in his name, that Jesus' word is power enough because there's life in his name. His word has enough power to release life. His word has enough power. And you know what? You can fill in the blanks that there's power in the name of Jesus to bring about restored relationships, that there's power in the name of Jesus to bring about physical healing, that there's power in the name of Jesus. I tell you what, how many of us in this room can probably relate 
to this man because of some crisis that took place in our life that brought us to Jesus. Someone in our family was sick. Someone, someone in our family was in some dire situation. Maybe we ourselves were in a dire situation and we've come to discover that, that there's power in the name of Jesus. And sometimes, and sometimes we've come to discover that Jesus comforts those that mourn because Jesus doesn't always. He's not a genie. He doesn't provide three wishes because we rub the lamp. He's the Lord and Savior. And when we discover that whether, that whether he's the healer of our life or he's the comforter of our life, we've discovered something about him that he is absolutely precious. None can compare to him. So what's your need this morning? I've asked the worship team to sing a song this morning that I believe can release in our hearing power to heal sick bodies, power to heal emotions, stress, power to release blessings of all kinds, restoration. And my prayer this morning is that as we begin to just enter into a knowledge that his word is enough, that there is power in the name of Jesus, that there is life in the name of Jesus, that there's healing in the name of Jesus, that, that, that some of us this morning, maybe every single one of us this morning, can leave this place with a blessing that has been ordained from before the foundation of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your sufficiency is enough for us. We thank you that there is power in your word, that there is deliverance in your word, that chains are broken, addictions are broken in the name of Jesus. We thank you this morning, Lord, that as we look to you, even now, that our hearts are encouraged to believe that the pure words of Jesus are more than enough for us that like the Samaritans and like that nobleman, we are going to take you at your word, that there is mighty power in the name of Jesus because there's life in the name of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you, you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're not a, a Christ follower, may I just invite you to do that in the simplicity of what John says, that the takeaway is simply this, that if you would believe in Jesus, there is life in his name and that you would receive life this morning that comes through Jesus. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. You start that conversation simply like this. Say, Jesus, come in to my life. I receive you and I accept you as my Lord and Savior. You, you are more than a faith healer. You are, you, you are more than a prophet. You're more than a teacher. You are very God of very God. And I acknowledge that and receive you this morning. If you do that, you will have life and have it more abundantly. Let's all stand together as we worship him one more time.